Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, this is Pete Bauer. And I'm Dorothea Bauer. And this is My Name is Not Steve. We are still not named Steve. (laughs) I don't know what voice that was, but (laughs) we're storytellers. That talk about storytelling. All right, we must stop. (laughs) We must stop. Why? I can't. We can't do the whole show like that. (laughs) Yes, I can. (laughs) I'd have to kill you. (laughs) Hey, we're talking about authenticity. (laughs) (laughs) So the real you's coming out? Is that what you're doing? (laughs) Yeah, yo. You can only see her. Her arms are flailing <laughs> everywhere as every time she speaks. Yo. <laughs> it's like I'm trying to fall. <sighs> I can't do this forever. I Thank try. goodness. Thank goodness. Uh, back to a little bit of normalcy. I, like, I can't BS anything. <laughs> like I always end up bursting into laughter. It's so bad. Yeah, you're pretty awful at it. What? All right. So. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. How are you doing? Just stop. Just stop. <laughs> That's too painful. It's just <laughs> Daddy. Stop. All right. So um <laughs> so we're gonna talk about authentic Catholic characters. Now see this is what happens when you make me do two podcasts in a I row. I get silly. <laughs> All right, so the reason we're talking about Catholic characters is because, well, we're Catholic. But Mm -hmm. this discussion could relate to any sort of authenticity when it comes to characters. But we're going to focus on the Catholic aspect of that. Yes, we are. But first, Dorothy, an update. Update! Well, since this is the second recording in a row, because as I mentioned before, (laughs) I'm having surgery uh, in a couple of weeks. We have nothing new to report. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm guessing, I'm going to look into the future. A couple of weeks. Well, actually... We got our beta Rita feedback. <laughs> Please, I'm begging <laughs> you to stop. I'm hoping by then we do have the beta reader feedback. In two weeks, will I be having surgery? No. No, so I'm about to have surgery. You're about to have surgery. Ooh, and I'm really nervous about that suddenly. Yeah. Because the time has suddenly slipped by. <laughs> Here we are two weeks into the future. I'm really nervous. Actually, even right now, I just want it over with so I can... Because I know the recovery is going to suck because... Well, they're cutting you open. Have you received? <laughs> but I just, I just kind of want to get past that and be home for Thanksgiving. That's my goal. Have you received the anointing of the sick? I have received the anointing of the sick. Because I remember before my surgery. Yeah. <laughs> You're such a Catholic geek. I love being Catholic. Before my surgery, I was really nervous about it. And you're like, well, Father Petschy's coming over tonight. Why don't you have him say a blessing over you? And I'm like, oh, maybe I could get anointing of the sick because I'm about to have surgery. Because that's a new sacrament. I'd never received it before. Eventually, you get to a point where while all the sacraments are amazing, you just don't receive any new sacraments because right. you've received them for the first time. Yeah, and- you, you only need to receive them once. And well, well except the Eucharist, yeah, and confession. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> and anointing of the sick. But it was a new. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna edit that. But it was a new sacrament, and I was really excited about it. Yeah, because you're a Catholic geek. And it was amazing. Yeah. No, I have. You had shouldn't that. edit that out. It shows that you're human, Dad. Be authentic. <laughs> oh, good. Do I, I have a special voice when I'm BSing? Things? I hope you survive this episode. <laughs> This, I can take you. I don't, I don't know. Oh, I can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm this is why I don't need to drink. <laughs> For anyone who's curious, <laughs> this is why I do not need alcohol. <laughs> oh, this is. I'm going to sick some Canadians on you. That'll train you. As long as they're not snowbirds, we'll be fine. 
They have to be snowbirds. They're Canadians. If they're snowbirds, that's not not yes. accurate. Yep. But if they're snowbirds, you know what I would love to do? I would love to take them to a driver's ed course. That'd be a really <laughs> great way to spend our time. You know what I want to do is I want I want to find out where they really want to go and then get in front of them and slow down. I'm sorry. We're just going to stop in the middle of the road. <laughs> Are you in a hurry? That's not very Christian of us. It's snowbirds. Hey, I want to educate them. Yeah, and I wanted to make their life miserable. So what does that say? Authentic. (laughs) (laughs) All right, authentic Catholic characters, Dorothea. So as we've established, we watch a lot of television and movies. What? (laughs) Probably more than we should. What? We should read more. You're an author. (laughs) I do read. When I I get done with a book, I usually take some time to read. I'm actually reading a book right now, so there. Oh, okay. Hmm. Very nice. There you go. (laughs) We've seen a lot of Catholic characters come and go. Yep. And not a lot of them are actually Catholic. Well, you know, I think sadly, and this is may irritate or offend some people, and I really don't mean it to, but a lot of people think they're Catholic in the real world are not authentically Catholic. So unfortunately, Catholicism has become more of a family tradition than it actually has been a belief system. So you have a lot of people who do sacraments, like they have their baby baptized or they get married in the church because it's expected from a family perspective, like, well, of course I'd get married in the church, but I never go to mass and I never go to confession or whatever. So I think that's part of it. I think I think a lot of people think that the way they were raised means that they are Catholic or good Catholics, and through ignorance, more than likely, they, they're really not. So I think part of that is that. I think some of those people write Catholic characters, and they are authentic to them, but they're really not authentic to anyone who's, who's devoutly Catholic. But you've even said, as you've grown older and learned more about your faith, that when you were younger, you were a cafeteria Catholic and didn't even realize it. Right. And that's why I I say that with compassion, you know, and empathy, because I've been there. I didn't, you don't know what you don't know. So, you know, my brothers and I call ourselves part of the lost generation of Catholics because we were the post-Vatican II Catholic children, and our parents were Vatican I children. And so a lot of things changed, not just Vatican I to II, but there was a lot more priests, there were a lot more nuns, there were a lot more Catholic schools, there was a lot more official education. After Vatican II, the education kind of slipped a lot. There's a lot of things done, quote-unquote, in the spirit of Vatican II that were really just kind of things priests and nuns made up because that's what they wanted to do. And after Vatican II, a lot of the education was more about how I felt about my faith as opposed to God telling me what he expects me to do. And so I didn't know that I wasn't well-formed. It wasn't until actually I was at work. You know, people knew I went to church and I was really happy being Catholic. And so someone asked me a really basic question about original sin, and I didn't know the answer. And I was like, huh. And this is someone who came from China. So they were, you know, raised in a communist atheistic society. So I felt obligated to answer the question and I couldn't. And that really bothered me. And as I mentioned before, as soon as I learn, as soon as I have an interest in anything, I have to learn everything about it. So I really started to dive in and recatechize myself. And it was then that I realized how badly formed I was. And around the same time, my brothers, my age, Paul and Charles were kind of doing the same thing. So we all recatechized ourselves. So that kind of gave us awareness of a little, probably a little more uh, of what is really quote unquote authentic when it comes to Catholic characters or or being Catholic than not. So I think part of the problem is that people who write Catholic characters think they're authentic, but they really aren't. And we can give some examples. Um, I think the best example is Bones. Bones, as you know, is one of my (laughs) favorite shows. Yeah, top 10. You know, I just love it. One of the characters on that show, Booth, is a Catholic character, except for the fact that he slept around a lot. I think for a lot of people that is 
what they believe is authentically Catholic, right? But the thing that I didn't understand about that is there would be an episode where he was dancing with Bones, and she would be dancing close to him, and he would say he needed space to leave room for the Holy Spirit. That was a line that he said on the show. But only when they're dancing, suddenly, if if clothes are on, you need to leave room for the Holy (laughs) Spirit. But if clothes are off, anything's The Holy Spirit left the room because he's embarrassed. I think that it goes back to if you were raised in a devoutly Catholic home, even if you've abandoned it as an adult, you still have all of those things that you learned, right? Like that phrase was probably told by his parents when he went on on a date, you know, keep room for the Holy Spirit. My parents said that too. My dad also said other things which were inappropriate. But <laughs> I but, don't remember you saying that to me, well, but I never dated. You never so. <laughs> dated. That's solved that problem. It's waiting. Well, when we were on retreats, though, all the group leaders would be like, no purple, because girls were pink and guys were blue, and uh, no purple. And I always thought that was stupid. Well, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for sharing. But I'm anyway, glad so- we took time to talk about that. Even, even a character who, part of that Booth character is authentically modern-day Catholic, and I have to, we have to separate this out. We're not saying they're good Catholics, but there are a lot of Catholics who were raised in devout homes who have abandoned it and kind of made up their own version of Catholicism. Unfortunately, a lot of people have made up their own versions of Catholicism. Heads up, there's only one version of Catholicism. You're either part of it or you're not. You either adhere to it or you don't. Especially in New England, there's a lot of Catholicism that isn't really doctrinally sound and, and orthodox. So they'll tell you they're really devout Catholics. They just happen, you know, to support abortion. You know, and you're like, well, that doesn't exist. So anyway, but the point is, is that if a character was raised, so Booth's character was raised in a, in a devoutly Catholic home, but has since abandoned it or loosened the, what Catholicism means to him, those moments would come up, right? That he would remember something, but it doesn't mean that he lives it, you know? But there was a moment in Castle, which kind of is, was insanely inauthentic. And this, we've talked about before, that the first seven seasons of Castle were really good. Uh, the eighth season's kind of a mess. And because they have new showrunners. And there's been multiple times where the characters have spoken where you're like, that character wouldn't say that. I know I've spent seven years with this character. For example, the two detectives are Ryan and Javi. Now, Javi is ex-military. Like black ops, I think. Right, like intense right. ex-military. Yes. So in the first episode of the eighth season with the new showrunners, the new writers, there's a moment where they come across a storage unit full of guns. And it's Ryan who calls out what the rifles are. And I'm like, Ryan wouldn't say that. Javi would. He's ex-military, right? Those kind of moments you're like, that's not right. Yeah. Now, when it comes to authentic Catholicism, there was an episode recently where someone was praying in a church, Catholic church, and they were murdered while they were praying. And so Javi and Ryan both show up at the crime scene, and when they find out the guy died while praying, they both instinctively, reflexively kind of cross themselves, you know, make the sign of the cross. And the medical examiner's like, what are you guys doing? They're like, oh, sorry, it's, it's you know, reflex. We were both altar boys growing up, right? Which is fine. It's, again, it goes back to Booth, you know, keep room for the Holy Spirit. But at the end of the episode, they're trying to frame this one guy They don't have evidence to convict him, so they're trying to set up evidence so that if he takes the evidence, it shows he's guilty. So they hide it near the altar at the church. And so through a series of events, the lights go out. The bad guy not only gets away, but also gets the evidence, right? And so Javi and Ryan rush up to the altar. They find the stuff's missing, and they curse. 
And you and I are both like not authentically Catholic. Especially because I was an altar girl. Right. If you were on the altar, being on the altar is sacred. You can't just go on the altar if you want to. You have to have a purpose being up there. You have to have respect for where you are. And running up to the altar to catch a criminal, that's a legitimate reason to go up there. But you wouldn't just forget where you are because right. that's that's instinctively trained in you. They spend months making sure that you are doing things the way that you're supposed to do. And if you have to instinctively cross yourself right. when you hear someone's been murdered while praying, it would definitely not even occur to you to have an argument with guns ablazing on the altar. Yeah, and it's it was so obviously wrong from a Catholic perspective. So whoever wrote that scene doesn't understand Catholicism at all. Not only doesn't understand Catholicism, it's even beyond that. They don't understand what they set up within the characters because those characters have already established that as altar boys, they have these reflexive reactions to holy things, to holy events, to holy places. And so when crap hits the fan... Even if they were to curse, they would go, oh, oh, sorry, 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 shouldn't have said that. They would have reacted in a way that was like awareness of, like you said, if you're an altar server, you are aware. Even if you abandon it as an adult, how many times in our childhood, the things we learned as a childhood never leave us, right? So if you've been an altar boy through your childhood, you would know that's the altar. And even if you don't even believe it anymore, you know that the people in this building do, and you know that you should respect that because you used to be up there. And so it was so blatantly inauthentic that it was irritating. It totally took me out of the scene because I'm like, they would never, ever say that. Whoever wrote that is a moron. Well, and the thing, too, is that if they didn't want to take the time to do that because it was a very climactic scene, they shouldn't have included the instinctual sign of the cross. Right. Well, they did it. Be- it's a- You can tell it's someone who isn't Catholic that wrote that scene because they did the sign of the cross as a punchline, not as an expression of faith or an expression of childhood history. And so because of that, they didn't connect that childhood history to the moment later. And if they were at all Catholic, they would know that because there was a scene in Criminal Minds which shows that exactly. I love that scene. So one of my favorite scenes ever in Criminal Minds is in an episode where a man is murdered by a serial killer immediately after receiving communion. He receives communion, goes back to the pew, and then I believe his neck was slit or something like that. But he was killed immediately thereafter. So part of the standard Criminal Minds episodes is they have the agents go and explore the scene and recreate in their minds what happened. It helps get them in the moment so they can look around for the proper evidence. Right. So he's in the church. And again, part of creating this mental picture is the other characters will visually appear, even though they're not really there. Right. So Agent Rossi is sitting in the pew. He stands up and he's going to exit the pew, but he's first in line. So he goes and he stands and then he looks over and sees the victim's wife and daughter. And as any Catholic man would do, you see this all the time in Catholic churches. He stands to the side and lets his wife and his daughter go before him in line and then he follows. Right. And just the moment of Agent Rossi thinking about that, because timing-wise, it affects the crime. But that's what Catholic men do. Right. And I will forever love Criminal Minds for being authentic to that moment. Right. The one thing you don't want to do as a storyteller is give the audience or the reader or the listener any reason to escape the story. You never want to give them an out to go, wait, what am I doing? Oh, I'm watching a show or I'm reading a book. You don't want them to do that. You want them to be completely immersed in the story. And the worst thing that you can do is to create those inauthentic things. If you're not sure, don't include them, right? That's the easiest thing to do. 
I could write a story about a pasta maker in Italy. I could Google it, right, and figure that out. But there's certain things I could never write about because I haven't done that and I haven't been there. I couldn't write about the smells or, you know, what parts of their body ache after they've done that all day. All those little things that actually make it authentic. And it's those details that create the authenticity. You know, one of the comments that I've gotten from the teens, especially the Catholic teens that have read the Gabby Wells books, is that Gabby's struggle is very authentic to them because, well, it's my struggle, it's your struggle, right? Anyone that's Catholic and has has grown in their faith has had a lot of questions where they're like, why does God allow this to happen? I don't know if I can live up to the expectations of my faith. And all those very subtle detail questions, not the big questions, you know, like, does God exist? And do I believe in Jesus or whatever? But the more nuanced questions like, how does my faith affect me in this moment? How does it affect my decisions? How does it affect the people that I'll interact with and the people that I'll call friends? So those are the more subtle ways that that are true and authentic. And if you're an outsider looking in, you could Google what it means to be Catholic and come up with the sign of the cross as an altar boy, but it doesn't mean anything if at the end of the story they react as if that never occurred. They should have just excluded it and it would have been much better. Yes. So here's a different here's a perfect example in the same series where it is authentic. Ryan's character in an early episode in an earlier season said that he was taught by nuns. Right. So at one point, one of the people being interviewed is a nun and he's totally freaked out because he's like, man, don't mess with nuns. They've taught me they're scary. Don't mess with them. Right. And that's been a lot of people's experiences when it comes to certain nuns teaching them. And so Javi, the tough military guy's like, you know, what's your deal? It's just it's just a nun. And then as the nun like snaps back at him during the interview, Javi gets like all afraid. And that, Ryan gets all cocky. Yeah, like, see, see, I told you. I told you. Right now that that's more authentic. That was someone who understood what it meant to be Catholic and expressed it correctly. And then you flash forward to these new writers and they have no idea what it means to be Catholic. And that's kind of frustrating because you want to see authentic characters. You want to see yourself and your faith accurately represented. Well, especially because your faith, and this is what's really hard for people who are not of faith. Your faith is really two kind of things. It's the public face of your faith, and it's the personal connection to your faith. The public faces could be your church. It could be, you know, for Catholics, it's priests, it's nuns, it's the collar, it's the it's the grand churches, it's the altar, it's the incense, it's the Eucharist, it's all those things, right? The smells and bells, as some Protestants call Catholics. <laughs> so that's part of it, right? That's the public face of it. And that's what that people who aren't Catholic often attach Catholicism to. But what non-believers or, or non-devout people don't understand is that if you're devout, it's also insanely personal. Your relationship with God and Jesus is insanely, insanely personal. And what I mean by that is that, for example, if you really believe that God is, is God, right, created everything, and you really believe that God entered humanity in the form of Christ, and you really believe that's God, then you would never use his name in vain. Because it's as offensive as calling my wife a bad name or offending my children. That's how personal people's faith is. That's why it's a really delicate line. Even people of faith who create entertainment like me, or I remember the band Striper, for example, they were the first heavy metal Christian band. And because of that personal relationship, that's oftentimes where people of faith can get into trouble, or especially if people not of faith trying to create these inauthentic versions of Christians. because somewhere along the line, you're going to cross that personal relationship that people have. For example, I watch the Sherwood Baptist movies, you know, Facing the Giants, things like that. And I expected them to be fully Baptist. It didn't offend me that they weren't Catholic, right? So I would hope that Baptists, if they read my novels, would go, well, I don't understand all that. 
but I get that she's Catholic. So that hopefully should not cross some sort of personal relationship with God line. But so many times, Hollywood creates characters that do cross that line. They don't understand it. They just take the public-facing aspects of faith, and then they're basically insulting your spouse, you know? And it's like, I'm always going to be offended when you insult my spouse, by the way. Always. It's always going to happen. So they go, well, I don't understand why I can't, you know, you get so mad when I say, you know, Jesus' name in anger, or if I say, oh my God, you know, it's like, well, yeah, because... God is is very personal to me. And so, yeah, you're offending him and that offends me. And they just don't get that. Well, and that is something that we experience on a daily basis too. I have a friend who I actually consider a very good friend of mine who is not religious at all. She's an atheist. But in general, she has a lot of respect for my faith. And I've always appreciated that. And I've respected her as an individual as well. But there was one day she kind of crossed the line and she said a mocking prayer that was very blasphemous. And I was like, and I'm done. Yeah, You know, I respect that you don't believe what I believe, but if you respect that it is what I believe, you shouldn't have said that. Yeah, but she may not have been aware that was crossing the line because they don't know what they don't know. It goes back to that sort of thing. So that's one of the challenges. And what's interesting about when Hollywood tries to express Catholicism, it's really interesting. One of the movies I kind of like, it's, it's not a great movie, but I kind of like is the movie Constantine with Keanu Reeves. And it's about a guy who is destined for hell because he tried to kill himself. And so he's destined for hell and he's Catholic. So he's trying to like earn his salvation by expelling as many demons to hell as possible through exorcisms and whatnot. And to me, that's a perfect example of the problem with Hollywood and Catholicism, because what they love about Catholicism is it has rules. And, it, and it's also the most visual Christian faith. It has the smells and the bells. It has the architecture and the stained glass windows and all that stuff, right? It has vestments and, and the rosary and everything, right? And the collar. And the collar. It has all that. So they love using that. So they take the rules. It's believed that if you, I mean, God's the ultimate judge and, you know, he's a perfect judge. So we don't know for sure, but we believe that if you commit suicide, that you won't go to heaven because you've, instead of relying on faith to get through whatever you're going through, you've fallen into despair. Well, and actually the most offensive thing that you can do to God as far as sin is concerned is to reject the graces of the Holy Spirit. And that is what suicide is. Right. Now, that doesn't include people who have mental illness and whatever. That's why I mean that God's the perfect judge. But that's the general understanding. So they took this idea of he tried to kill himself, so he's broken the law, right? He's going to hell. And so they use all these rules to confine him while ignoring the fact that, well, if he just asks for forgiveness, he wins, right? It's, yeah. It it's all goes away. But they don't use any of that at all. And I thought that was so funny because I loved the Catholic aspects in it because I thought it was kind of cool, you know, that it actually acknowledged certain weight to moral decisions and eternal consequences. But they totally reject the salvation part of it. Which is funny because Catholicism exists because of salvation. Yeah, it's the only reason it exists. Without Jesus coming down for salvation, we'd all be Jewish. <laughs> that's um, right. <laughs> so that's just ridiculous to me. But it's also how I get really frustrated when I see movies that have angels because Hollywood does not understand angels at all. No. Oh, my gosh. So there, there's one movie... It was a remake of a German movie. I, I forget the name of it. It had Meg Ryan and Nicolas Cage. City of Angels. City of Angels. The whole idea that an angel could fall in love with a human and that love be more powerful and want them not want to be an angel anymore means you don't understand where angels are. Mm -mm. So angels, the way we understand it, is that they exist outside of time. They're solely spirit. And they exist in the presence of God at all times. God is love, too. Right. Like We so need to that's identify what, that's that I mean. God is the definition of love. They're in the presence of God. Now, they can assist us here, 
but at the end of the day, they never leave the presence of God. So God is the ultimate of love. There is no human love that outweighs God's love. So the fact that an angel would go, yeah, you know this perfect love that I'm like surrounded by? Yeah, I'd rather have that love. You know, the girl could dump me in two years and that's fine. Like, what? That whole concept is so, I don't know, bad. Well, and they don't seem to understand that angels exist outside of time, too, because I, I see the premise of it's they're the angels struggling. And I'm like, no, no, they don't exist in time. Yeah, as we've talked about in just a couple of podcasts ago, angels, they were fully formed with the full knowledge and understanding to make a single decision because they existed outside of time and they had free will. And God's like, well, because you exist outside of time, you can only answer one question and you have all the knowledge and skill to answer this question any way you want which is, will you obey me? Will you serve me? And The ones that said yes are still in heaven. Are still in heaven. The ones that said no said, you can't be in heaven with me because you've chosen that. So the idea, the idea that they're struggling in time is kind of silly. There was another movie with Paul Bettany, and it was, it was written by guys who I don't think have ever read the New Testament because it was about, and I always love angel war visuals, like in movies. I think it's really cool. Paul Bettany plays the angel Gabriel who has left heaven Because God has given up on mankind and he's about to send all the angels to destroy mankind, which is an option for God. He could send water like in the flood, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone. He could do that too. This time he's going to send angels. So that's okay. It all takes place in this diner. I think it's, I think this movie is actually based on a graphic novel, maybe. I could be wrong. But anyway, so he's coming down and there's this waitress who's pregnant and it's kind of like the Christ child sort of thing. Like that child is going to save humanity. And so the angels need to kill everyone before that happens or something, right? And so Gabriel has not- (laughs) This is so stupid. (laughs) Yeah, right. Gabriel has not bought into that and he wants to defend humanity. So then he and Michael like have it out kind of thing. Now, the visuals in that movie are really, really cool, but you don't understand a damn thing if you've written that story. That's so stupid. Uh, from From a Christian or Catholic perspective. This is why a lot of Christians don't trust when Hollywood does try to make anything religious. Like AD came out and we talked about how great that was, but a lot of people did not give it a chance. I didn't even give it a chance until after the series had ended because you had watched it and said, no, it was really good. And then I watched it. I'm like, man, I wish I'd given this a chance when it was on. But I just didn't trust Hollywood to make something that was authentic. Right. And so we go back to remember the subtle things that will irritate some believers. And so you can't please them all. Striper actually stopped singing Christian music because they're like, no matter how often we do this. And I mean, Striper, get this, heavy metal band at the height of when Satanism was a big sell in in bands and heavy metal bands like Motley Crue and Slayer and Iron Maiden and all these things. So Striper's like, we're going to be really good Christians and we're going to go out there and we're going to sing about God. All of our songs are about God, but it is heavy metal because that's who we got to reach. It's kind of like our approach with the Gabby Wells books. Mm -hmm. They're not written for homeschoolers, although homeschoolers will like them. It's written for people who maybe haven't thought about their faith journey yet, right? So Striper's out there going, we're going to sing songs about God. They're really kick butt songs, really good metal songs. And we're throwing out Bibles. They throw out Bibles to the people. Right. And when the groupies would come back thinking they're going to have sex with Striper, they had Bible studies. Right. This is what they did on tour. And there were still people within their denomination that could not get past the idea that they were singing metal. Right. So they're like, well, that's just satanic. It's like, no, you you don't understand. And so they eventually abandoned singing Christian music because they could never please the people that should have been on their side because it crossed some sort of line, you know. And the same goes with with these movies. Like some people, when they watch AD, they're like, well, it's not exactly correct. It's not exactly the way it is in the Bible. According to my personal Bible. (laughs) Right. 
But none of the alterations that they made, because it's not a book, it's a show, diminished what was said in the book, right? So many times you'll see Hollywood go, It's and we've talked about this before, the History Channel will, will have a show about the lost gospels, but they never have someone who's orthodox talk, right? They only have the the people who question all the orthodox teachings of the Catholics or the Christians. I find it so funny when people talk about the lost gospels too, because there were a lot of things submitted to be put in the Bible that weren't. Right. It's not like, oh, these gospels, because they're not in the Bible, are more valid. No, they're not in the Bible for a reason. Right. It's like, it goes back to the Dan Brown flaw. The Dan Brown flaw with the Catholic Church, like with the Da Vinci Code, is if it's always been a powerful entity. It was 12 guys who were to be killed if the Romans really got an idea what they were doing. But they always look at, well, no, you know, Jesus really got married. And these guys, you know, they did that because for what? Why would they hide that Jesus got married? They were dying. Why would they make this up? Why would they go the against every psychological study? Death. Right. So he can get married. Are you kidding me? That's the dumbest thing ever, right? So a lot of people think of the Catholic Church and they always think of this power and so on and so forth, and they don't understand it. But anyway, back to the point of sometimes when you're creating these characters, even if they are authentic, they will cross some sort of personal line with people. And so you'll never get everyone of faith to agree of what you're doing. Not even in our own family sometimes. (laughs) That's true. It's just the nature of it because, like we said, part of that faith is a very personal thing. And a lot of this changed actually in the 60s. So if you look at movies before the 60s, the heroes, especially after World War II, the heroes were usually priests and nuns, like, you know, and the A stars played priests and nuns because they represented a personal sacrifice for a greater good, right? So the story about the guy who, the priest who started Boys Town, which was for orphaned boys, or someone who became Audrey Hepburn played a nun right? And she had to sacrifice. She came from a family that didn't really want her to be a nun, and she became a nun at at great sacrifice. And that touched the society at that time because everyone knew someone who had lost someone in World War II. And so everyone understood and appreciated and got the personal sacrifice for a greater good. So these great religious characters were played by the best actors because it really tapped into something. And it was very much the we generation. This is not about me. This is about we. We sacrifice so that the world's a better place. And after the 60s, it became the me generation. And suddenly the church, especially the Catholic church, became the thing that had all the rules that kept me from being me. And so you see Hollywood do this 180. All the characters of faith are now hypocrites. They're pedophiles, which has happened, right? They're sleeping with prostitutes, which has happened. But the point is, is that they took what was once holy and a worthy sacrifice, and they now represent Christianity and Catholicism as pedophiles, murderers, hypocrites, two-faced, whatever. We talked about this on a a different podcast, but a a perfect example of this is the movie Cape Fear. Cape Fear was made prior to the 60s, and it's a movie about a, a convict who wants to take vengeance out on a district attorney who put him in prison, and he stalks his family, okay? So that movie, the bad guy was just a bad guy. It was remade by Martin Scorsese with Robert De Niro. And the first time you see Robert De Niro, who's now the bad guy, he's in prison and he's doing push-ups or pull-ups or whatever. But now he has a massive crucifix tattooed in his back. And you just see his muscles in his back and this crucifix. So this bad guy now became a religious hypocrite bad guy, right? No reason for that religious part to be on it at all, except that Hollywood now perceives organized religion as the thing that keeps people from being them. Hollywood perceives organized anything as being offensive nowadays. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) 
But that's a perfect example of how this shift has kind of happened and how they've lost how to tell authentic stories. Those earlier stories about Boys Town and nuns and so forth, those were authentic stories of personal sacrifice. Some were historical stories of personal sacrifice for the betterment of other people. And they don't they don't even recognize that as a value, right? They they look at the the organized religions as an impediment to their own personal happiness. Therefore, they don't know how to tell authentic characters because they're villains in their mind, you know? And so that's why we get the, some of the crap that we see on TV because we're like, that's, you don't know what the hell you're talking about, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting talking about authenticity and authentic storytelling because that's something you've really tried to do with Gabby Wells is tell an authentic story, to tell a saint story. In a Hitchcockian universe. In but a Hitchcockian yes, right, universe. Right. But yeah, and it's it's hard. The saint stories are not pleasant. No, a lot of them were jerks. A lot of them <laughs> were, I mean, look at St. Augustine. He was terrible before he became a saint. And you look at all these saints and they had to go through a great ordeal before they really achieved holiness. Some of them were martyred for their faith. So these are not easy stories to tell, but it's important to tell them because that is what people cling to in times of hardship. They look at the stories and go, man, this person also struggled, but they overcame. And that's a really powerful story. Right. And that is the value of the stories of the saints. People who aren't Catholic don't understand why we revere saints. It's like it's it's our hall of fame of holiness. And it often makes me think of a lot of the saints were despised by their own orders because they were so holy. And I'm like, am I holy enough that my parish priest doesn't like me? Right. Uh, no, I probably should be. Like to me, that's not that that's a criteria, yeah. but, but my <laughs> let's point, get them to hate you. <laughs> no, but my point is, is that am I holy enough that it makes people uncomfortable? People who are embedded in this world, you can't get to heaven embracing your fallen nature. So if I'm not irritating people who embrace their fallen nature, then I'm not living a holy life. And that's the hard thing about living a holy life. I've always said it's so frustrating to love the way Christ calls us to love because we're called to love in a way that people don't want to be loved. Right. People want nowadays, especially want to be accepted. They don't want to be converted. And I don't say that in like, my aim is to convert everyone to Catholicism. I would love for everyone to be Catholic. But when I say we love being Catholic, because we love being Catholic. (laughs) But when I say conversion, I mean, conversion to the type of love that God taught us to love. Right. People nowadays want their bad choices to be validated instead of changing to live a better life in accordance with God's will. Right. But God calls us to love in accordance with his will. So it's it's so it's such a struggle because sometimes we'll have conversations and, and people get mad at us and we're like, no, this is out of love. You don't understand. I'm trying. I want you to be in heaven. That's the whole point of all of this. Right. And yeah, you're in a burning building. I'm trying to pull you out. And you're like, can't you just accept me being in a burning building? And I don't know if I'll make it out of the burning building myself, right. but we should at least try. Right. My job is to show you the door and to offer to lead you out. And your job is to decide whether you want to stay there or not. So that's always something that's really frustrating for us personally, but it's an important subject to discuss. And that's why you're writing these books. But I have noticed something very interesting. In our last podcast, we talked about music. And I found that as much as I really enjoy some Christian music, a lot of times it's very limited because it's mainly worship music. It's mainly songs about how God is glorious. And while that is absolutely true, God is (laughs) glorious. Sometimes you're mad at God. And people don't really write songs about when they're mad at God. People don't really write songs about how they're struggling in their faith. They write songs about how God helped them through their struggles. And I think that's a little bit limiting because people who don't have that worship relationship with God are not going to be drawn in by those types of songs. Yeah, that's one of the things I really, really like about the Gabby Wells character, because I try to express that in the most honest and authentic way possible. And here's an example. This is from the second book, Lost and Found. 
So Gabby's thinking about God. And she thinks, he was another touchy subject. As she was raised in a religious home and mentored by a supportive priest, the church's sacraments and traditions were important to her. Yet, as she got older, the more she thought about her faith, the less she seemed to understand it. The more she dove into its moral precepts, the harder it became to live up to them. Her friends were going through similar struggles, trying to figure out how the world worked and how they fit into it. Most of her classmates did this through rebellion. Gabby did too. Emma even more so. But most of them weren't shackled by divine expectations. They embraced the world's tempting vices and hoped their parents wouldn't find out. That sounded so much easier than turning the other cheek, loving those who hated you, and avoiding sin. Gabby had delayed her confirmation because she hadn't committed to remaining Catholic yet. At the same time, she couldn't imagine being anything else. Somewhere along the line, it had become a part of her identity. She wasn't sure how or when. She just knew not being Catholic would be hard and being a good Catholic even harder. So that's an example of that's the struggle, right? So that's why it's in there. This isn't about God always rescuing Gabby. This is about Gabby's trying to figure out in the early part of her faith journey when she's trying to make her faith her own, how that fits into her life. And that's one of the questions she has at this point in the series. So again, some of the most powerful songs that I've heard have been about struggle. I mean, there's a reason Adele is so popular. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that if we're not willing to talk about these kinds of stories, it's always going to be limiting. Right. We all want to get to heaven, but the path is narrow and hard. I mean, Jesus says that himself. So if you're going to express that journey authentically, then you really need to consider adding part of the struggle in it. I mean, even St. Paul, Paul in the Bible says, why do I keep doing what I know I shouldn't do? I mean, he struggled and he's Paul, right? He had a vision. He had, he had like the epiphany and he struggled having all the knowledge that he had. I love the portrayal of St. Paul in 80. Yeah, it really is it's perfect. It's so fantastic because it's just the perfect, perfect representation of Paul as you would imagine him. Like there are so many times, and I think I've mentioned this before, where Paul would just be Paul because he he was, I'm sure, incredibly irritating to be around. Well, I would, I would say he was passionate and probably thought he was right a lot. Which was probably irritating for everyone to be around. I mean, I think he's an incredible saint. Right. But, you know, there's sometimes when you're reading, you know, his letters and you're like, man, you just have no sympathy sometimes, man. It's like, it's it's hard to try and live up to that. And when it's constant. So there are so many times when like, I was watching AD when Paul would just be Paul and be like, well, I'm going to go in the temple and preach there. And I'm like, yes, because that is exactly what Paul would do. Yeah. It was perfect. It was and, very authentic. Right. And imagine him in today's world. Like if that's authentic. Right. Imagine today's world. Imagine how far we've fallen in today's world where we can't even have conversations about touchy subjects because someone's going to call you a name and put you into a category of homophobe or, you know, you hate women or whatever. You know what I mean? You can't even discuss things anymore. And Paul probably wouldn't give a crap about that. Yeah, he wouldn't care. I really, really just, I petition the world to come up with a better name for someone who is a bigot against people who identify as homosexual than homophobe, because homophobia is a clinical fear of two things that are the same. Right. And as a grammar person, that just irritates me. Yeah. I I don't mind there being a word. Just come up with one that's not grammatically incorrect. Right. It's always driven me nuts because it's not a phobia. I know. It's just not a it's phobia. It's not a phobia. Look, there is discrimination. Sure. There absolutely is. And there can be a name for that. But it's not homophobia because it's grammatically inaccurate. <laughs> and as writers, that's a little irritating. So it's important to write authentic characters. It's difficult to write authentic characters. And even when you do write authentic characters, not everyone's going to agree that they're authentic. 
So that's the struggle. But it goes down. The heart of all of this is that, as we said before, you don't want to pull the audience or the reader or the listener out of the story. That's the main thing. And the worst thing you can do is by making the characters act in a way that is not authentic. So recommendation time. Recommendations, Dorothea. Well, I'm going to stick with authenticity. Okay. That's a good choice. I mean, considering the subject matter, I think it's a good choice. I think, you know, there's there's two movies that come to mind and they're the same character, but one is much more authentic than the other one to me about the situation and what the person's actually capable of. And it's the Die Hard movies. Ah. In the first Die Hard movie, you kind of believe, even though it's ridiculous, you kind of believe that he could find himself in that situation and just keep fighting and keep going with cut up feet and just do the best that he can. He's going to go and he's going to fight and that's his thing. Right. But when you're crashing planes with, like, trucks in the fourth movie, <laughs> that just is not authentic to me. <laughs> it is entertaining, though. It is entertaining. It's a good action movie. But I just, I, I look at that and go, mm, really? <laughs> really? Okay. I mean, I enjoy that movie. Yeah, it's so not a I. bad movie. But it's just not authentic. So yeah. check them both out. Die Hard 1 and Die Hard 4. And, and avoid Die Hard 2 at all costs. Oh, yeah. Unless you like the F word. What is, is there, what's the third one about? The third one is about Hans Gruber's brother. That's right. And I with saw Samuel that Jackson. Okay. So my suggestion going with authenticity, one of the most authentic movies, mainstream movies I've seen that relay kind of the struggle with faith is The Mission. In The Mission, Robert De Niro is a slave trader, someone who goes out and takes natives. I think it's in South America. It's been a while since I've seen it. But anyway, he takes natives and, and captures them and sells them as slaves. And he has a moment where he wants to repent. And there's an awesome scene that totally expresses both the burden of sin and the freedom of forgiveness. It shows authentically and visually the struggle with faith, the struggle with the burden of sin and the power of forgiveness in a way that is not preachy. It's not overt. It's just really, really authentic. So authentic characters, Dorothea. What? <laughs> I don't remember what my voice was. I was in a mood. <laughs> um, Your arms are flailing, but you're, there's no. I know what was. The that's voice what happens I was doing. when you're not authentic, Dorothea. No, I can't. You can't I can't do it again. It. Yeah. See, perfect example of not being authentic. You know what? Oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> I just need to be in the right mood, man. <laughs> I got this. Oh. I'm like dancing with my arms flailing for the people who can't see. (laughs) I apologize. I apologize to all of you. All right. No, you don't. (laughs) You help create me, brah. (laughs) Brah. (laughs) Wow. All right. So um, that's it for this time. Uh, Dorothea, see you next time. See you next time. (laughs) Stop, please. (laughs) I beg you. This is who I am now. Deal with it. Uh, Sorry, people. What? (laughs) See ya. Here we go.